0: Just a couple things before we dive into the sermon. Uh, the first is in May. Our baby dedication is coming up. It's a really special time. If you, Even if you've already had your baby dedicated in this church before, uh, and you've already taken the class, you still need to register. So every uh, family that's participating needs to, needs to register for that. Uh, if you've not had your child dedicated here at the church, uh, you will need to take the class on April 7th. So look forward to that. Also, uh, really excited. Good Friday and Easter are coming. They are just around uh, the corner. And the theme this year is United. United. Uh, the in we are united, those who trust in Christ, the Spirit of God unites them permanently to Jesus Christ. So that everything Christ did in his death now is mine. It applies to me. And everything he accomplished in his resurrection life is now mine. It applies to me. So that's the theme this year. Just a couple of logistics. Good Friday, uh, we're having a 5 p.m. and a 6 45 p.m. Uh, service. The only uh, service that will have childcare care from uh, 18 months to first grade uh, will be the 5 p.m. There will no be, be no Bergen kids at all at the uh, second service. And then Easter, uh, a lot of people coming. We've got 8.45, 10 o'clock, and 11.30. One tiny little detail, the 8.45 and the 10 o'clock will be the only services uh, with child care, no child care, uh, or Bergen kids at all at the 11. Eleven thirty. So, uh, be in prayer for that. Be excitement uh, for that, and we uh, look forward that time to worship together as a church family. So, invite your family and friends to to worship with us. Today, uh, we're wrapping up our series called Prayers of Jesus. Uh, Prayers of Jesus, and it was it was fitting uh, that we're ending on John seventeen, which is the great high priestly prayer. And Pastor Mike preached the first five verses. And the, the goal, the, pur- the purpose of uh, the first five verses was to declare and to make clear what is the supreme aim of all of our prayers. And that is the glory of God. The, all, of our, all of our petitions that we present to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're ultimately tethered to this ultimate goal of God being glorified in everything. So if you have someone who is sick in your life and you're praying to God that he would heal them, ultimately your ultimate goal is that he would be glorified. So that even if he doesn't heal, he's still glorified. That if you, have, you don't have a job and you need God to, to give you a job, your ultimate goal is not, no ultimate hope is not that God will give you the job, is that God will be glorified. And so Jesus, so we're, we're, not, we're not asking God to come down and attend to our little needs. We take them and we lay them before the awesome throne of God through Jesus Christ. We're not afraid of the throne because Christ's blood has been shed. So the wrath of God is, is done away for the children of God who trust in Jesus Christ. So we take our needs, we bring them up into the throne of God, and we lay them before him and say, if it would so glorify you, hear my pleas. In the last 20 verses, I get the daunting task of t- preaching 20 verses. Jesus is going to be praying for those who are his. And the last part is those who will be his. I'm going to pray because uh, I learned this past week that there's a man, there was a man named Anthony Burgess uh, who was a Puritan, a big-time theologian, preacher, Back in the 1600s, he preached 145 sermons on John 17. And I have to preach 20 verses in about 30 minutes. And I know that I just put myself into a lot of trouble by saying I'm preaching in 30 minutes. Some of you guys got your timers out. But be gracious today. So I say this to let's have our expectations clear. As much as, much as, as I mean, there is so much in John 17 uh, this past two, this last week and this week, is is not everything that can be said about John 17. So, uh, but the Spirit of God is good. I feel His presence with me now, so I am I am hopeful uh, that He is going to bless you and encourage you today by some things that uh, He was so kind to help me to see in John 17. So let's let's ask God to to help me and to help you guys receive uh, what is true from the Word of God today. Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken to us in the scriptures. You've spoken to us in your word. We can actually hear from our creator. We thank you for our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us every moment. And his petitions and prayers and pleas are what sustain us even now. What a gracious, gracious Savior, wonderful Savior that he is. Help us to to become more like Him, through what we see in John 17 this morning, in Christ's name I pray, Amen. So, John 17, this is a this is a really really holy moment between the Father and the Son. It's it's very weighty. If you look at the next few verses in the first few verses in chapter 18, the next thing that happens is He is betrayed by Judas, and He goes to the cross to be cursed in our place for our sins. And so the gospel writer John wants us to have a little peek into this intra-Trinitarian prayer. That's a big theological term for a, a prayer that's happening between God the Father and God the Son. Christians believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is a prayer between the Father and the Son, a very, very intimate and I would compare it to, I'm trying to, I thought of an illustration this week to, to help you feel the intimacy of it and the weightiness of it and the holiness of it and the sacredness of it. Imagine a husband and wife at a Newark Airport, not God forsaken LaGuardia and uh, just Newark Airport, okay? Newark Airport, the, the husband is about to get onto the airplane and he's about to go to a war and they, ha- they have no idea when or if he's going to return. And they are sharing possibly their last words ever. And their knees buckle and they fall to the ground and their foreheads touch. And they are sobbing and they are weeping and they are sharing their last words. The last thing he says before he goes on the plane is, take care of the kids. In, in that moment, that is a holy, sacred moment at Newark Airport. No one dares do like a peekaboo and say, hey, what's you... What are you guys talking about? <laughs> if anything, people take, they take, they they back up. Is he, give them some space. This is kind of what's happening between the father and the son, but to an infinite degree. So the question I had this week was why is Jesus letting us in? If if in the husband and wife people don't would never intrude, why is Jesus letting us intrude? And it's very simply this. He wants you to know that he's praying for you. That in this moment between the Father and the Son, you are actually one of the primary topics of conversation between the Father and the Son. And if there's anyone who's ever walked this earth whose prayers deserve to be heard, it's Jesus's. His prayers, they have infinite merit. Jesus is the great I am. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the redeemer. He's the prince of peace. He's the prince of heaven, the great high priest. He's the resurrected, conquering one over Satan, sin, death, death, demons, and hell. He is the righteous one, the holy one of God. He is very God of very God, the eternal begotten son. So when he prays to the father, he must be heard, and he must be answered. When you and I pray, we don't pray according to our righteousness. We pray like Daniel. In Daniel 9.18, he says, I have it written down here. It will be up on the screen. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So <laughs> the only hope that I have and being heard by God is that he's a merciful God. Because I don't deserve to be heard. Jesus does not pray according to His mercy, to God's mercy. He prays according to his righteousness. I am the righteous one. I must be heard. I am your son. And I'm praying for these people. And so the most glorious thing, the big, the big takeaway, the most glorious thing about this prayer is not what is prayed for you but who is praying for you? We're going to talk about, we're going to see some wonderful, some encouraging, some strengthening things that Jesus is going to pray for us. But at the back, in the back of your mind, hold tightly to the fact that it's Jesus praying for you. And that is what makes us trust what is prayed for all the more strongly. And delightfully. So what does Jesus pray? The first section, there's kind of two big sections. The first one he prays for those who are his, and the last section praise prays for those who will be his. And the first thing that Jesus wants you to know in this prayer is that you belonged to the Father before you believe in the Son. You belonged to the Father before you believed in the Son. Look at verses Six through ten. I have manifested is Jesus talking to his father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you, the Father, gave them to me, the Son, and they have kept your word. That's profound. You, if you belong to Jesus, if you have recognized that you're a sinner, you deserve hell. You're, in, in your own right, you deserve to be condemned. You've recognized that and you said, I will, I, I, that's not good. I hate that. I've dishonored you, God. I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to embrace the only means of salvation, your son, Jesus Christ. If that is you, you must know that you were like an arranged Marriage. I know that in America, we're not pro-pre-arranged marriages, but this, is, this Father is infinitely wise. And he, it was like an arranged marriage between believers and Jesus Christ that the Father had decreed. That before light was spoken into existence, before God created the universe and the galaxies and he created all things, you were in his mind, on his heart, in his plan to be united to Jesus Christ in everlasting love. And when Jesus, those whom Jesus receives, Jesus says that he gives them the words of God. He, He washes them with the water of the word, like it says in Ephesians 5, that the church might be presented to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He says, verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you and to believe that you sent me. How do you know if you belong to the Father? It's a very simple question. Do you receive his words? Do you receive the words of God? Do you receive the scriptures? If you have a Bible in your lap, the scriptures on the screen, from Genesis to Revelation, do you receive them, all of them, as a wonderful deposit of truth through which you can enjoy a relationship with the Savior? So the way that you know that you belong to the Father is if you receive his words. What else did Jesus pray for you? Jesus prays for your protection. He prays for your protection. Look at verses 11 through 12. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction the scripture might be fulfilled that's Judas this these two verses have served such have served me in, in such profound ways this week and i pray that it encourages you i want you to realize that according to these verses the decisive power that sustains your faith, that sustains your faith and your faith and your faith. If you trust in Christ, if you love Christ, if he is your king, your master, your Lord, your savior, the decisive power, sustaining, preserving, and holding it intact are the prayers of Jesus. The only reason you woke up today Loving Jesus is because the high priest of heaven was still praying for you. Amen. Psalm 63, verse 8, David says, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. What, what keeps his, the, the fingers of his soul clinging to the Lord? It is the one who is upholding him with his right hand. Hebrews 7, 25, 26 says of Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who would draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So because Jesus is always living, when Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, he came back with a new kind of body that no one else has ever had. It was a resurrection body, that, the kind of body that could only stand in the presence of the awesome glory of God and not be incinerated. It can never be destroyed. It can never perish. It can never rot, never grow old. Because he lives forever, his prayers can continue forever. And our faith, because of that, will continue forever the most amazing illustration i think the clearest illustration of this truth is in luke 22 right before uh, peter um, betrays jesus and and denies him three times and he and jesus have a little chit chat this is what jesus says to peter he calls him simon luke 22 31 34 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, verse 32, but I have prayed for you, listen, that your faith may not fail. Why will Peter's faith not fail? Look what it says in the next sentence. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He does deny him, but his faith does not utterly fail. He repents and he comes back to Jesus. His faith does not fail. Why does it not fail? Because Jesus prayed for his faith. Even if if Satan himself is after you, if Christ is praying for you, you are secure. The only thing that sustained and kept Peter a Christian was the fact that Jesus was praying for him. So today, if you are here and you are loving Jesus, the only thing sustaining it are the (laughs) the invisible pillars of the petitions of the prince of heaven. These eternal, everlasting pillars upholding your faith. What does this do for the Christian? How could you ever be proud. How could you ever boast in your own faith? How could you How could you ever be an arrogant Christian? If I were to ask you the question, are you a Christian? And if you were to say, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. What kind of questions? Of course I am a Christian. That person has either forgotten or does not know that the only reason they believe in Jesus is because the prayers of Jesus were even underneath them making it happen so the real answer should be I cannot believe that I still believe in Jesus today I cannot believe that I want to be here today worshiping Jesus I cannot believe that I I used to be enslaved to that (laughs) and now I'm not (laughs) and Jesus is better And the one who is better is also the one upholding my trust in him in the first place. It's pretty mind-blowing. Now, real quick, be careful. Be careful that you don't use this as an excuse to wander off into sin. Well, if Jesus is praying for me and my faith is sustained by him and him alone, not my being, I'm just going to keep doing whatever I want. Paul says, shall you continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace upon grace. Right, it's all grace. It's all grace. Grace will cover that. Grace will cover that. Grace will cover that. Grace will cover that. Right? No. How can you have died? How can you who died to sin still live in it? How can you? Here's how I put that. How can you keep doing the thing willfully and blatantly? If that's the very thing that held Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. My sin held him there. Why? That doesn't, mean you, you, that doesn't mean Christians are going to be perfect, but there is a constant war. And there is an evidence of hatred of our sin because of what it does to the Lord, how it required Jesus to be crucified from me, and it causes me to love the Savior all the more. And so this, this, this frankly, just as a little window into my life, my most frequent prayer is this idea of protection. Lord, preserve me. Just keep me. When I wake up in the morning to read my Bible and whatever, just my most frequent prayer is just, Lord, just keep me. Just preserve me. Psalm 16.1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Keep me, keep me faithful, keep me pure, keep me true to your word, keep me good to my family, keep me good to my wife and my little girls. Just keep me, Lord, just preserve me. What else does Jesus pray for you? Jesus prays for a new pleasure. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Pastor Mike talked about last week about how the true mark of a Christian is joy. And I want to press on that just a little bit more, get a little more specific. It's not just any joy. It's Jesus' joy. It's a joy that cannot be gotten within the natural realm. It comes from outside. And it's tethered to something otherworldly. It's tethered to the glory of God. What is Jesus' joy? What is his joy in? Verses one through five. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Now, the reason why this is staggering, the reason why Jesus, this is staggering, that Jesus is praying that you would have his joy, is this is like limitless joy. Because this is, if Jesus, okay, Jesus is God. So that means, that means, this is almighty, sovereign power, experiencing, Infinite joy in what is infinitely beautiful and glorious, namely god you it 's not possible to conceive of a greater happiness and jesus is saying i 'm praying that they would have this the true <laughs> the true holy hedonists are Christians. This is why when we, we see people Mocking Christ or mocking the gospel or mocking God and fiddling around with, as C.S. Lewis would say, just silly things like drink and whatever. The true joy is found in Jesus, and he's praying that you would have this. Now, here's the thing it's always going to be growing. It's always going to be growing. Do you pray that God would increase your joy? They would continue to grow it more and more. And this really is what you will find happening, is you will find in your heart, you desiring to, to, it's the greatest motivation to pray for other people to be saved. Because you want them to have what you have. You know they don't have that. They don't have my joy, as it says, as Jesus says in verse 13. And you want them to have his joy. Because the only thing better than a solo joy is a shared joy. <laughs> Right? you want more people to be into it you'll find yourself growing in your desire to evangelize you might even become a missionary who knows because the ultimate desire is not that we would see people rescued from the pains of hell but reconciled to the pleasures of heaven it's not just they almost burned it's they have Jesus what else did Jesus pray for Jesus prays for your purity. Look at verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. That's Satan. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. That just means set them apart for a holy purpose. You've been given a new purpose, and it's a holy purpose. It's a holy ambition. You have a new purpose, a new mission in life, and it's a holy one, and it requires a holy life. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, and you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Pastor Peter talked about in worship and prayer last week, how that's referring to Jesus when he set himself apart for the holy task of going to the cross and dying for us. That they may also be sanctified in the truth. Why is Jesus praying for our purity here? Why is he praying for our purity? And it has to do with the fact that he's, he's leaving, right? He says... I don't know if it says it here. I am not of the world. So Jesus is leaving. He's going back to his father. And so now he's he's no longer on the earth to represent the father, to represent God, to to be the image of God, to represent it to the world. So after he leaves, he's now having us represent him on the earth and the only fitting representatives, ambassadors, for Christ, are holy ambassadors, holy representatives. We should stick out. It says the world will hate you. You're going to stand out. Now, the world is not going to hate you because you're a jerk. There is such a thing as people not liking you because of the way that you interact with them as a Christian. But we belong to another kingdom. We have different values, passions, desires. And so you're going to be totally different. So the question is, do do you look just like the world? Do you pray, Father, make me like Jesus? I want to apply this specifically to our congregation because we have a lot of, I was actually, I was in Starbucks the other day and I ran across a guy from another church, another gospel preaching church, Hawthorne Gospel Church, and uh, he's from that church and he's just a member there and he came to our church one time. And he said, you know, I was really encouraged. There's a lot of, a lot of young people at your church. And I was yeah, it's really encouraging. We have a lot of young people, a lot of young singles. And my wife and I, we lead a, with, with Jerome and Annalise, we lead a, a young adult group, a lot of 20s, a lot of 20-year-olds in there, about 30 people. It's pretty crazy, but it's fun. A lot of young singles in the church. And if you're here, you're young and you're single, we just want you to know that we love you We are so grateful for you. We're glad that you're here, and we need you. You're you're the ones who have a bunch of life ahead of you. You're supposed to have the the most most zeal, the most ambitions, right? Holy ambitions. And you don't have, you're not yoked to anyone in marriage. You don't have kids. You you can just go wherever you want, do whatever you want, and no one will care. (laughs) Not that marriage is a a ball and chain. It's like wings, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's not, some of you, my wife was in the first service, and so I was like, I looked at her, I was like, winked at her, I was like, I love you. Um, no, but, like, young singles, you got one life. You got one life. Are you gonna use your single for the glory of God? Use your singleness for the glory of God and for the kingdom and for the gospel? So a quick, quick, couple, Two questions. Are you a follower of Jesus? If so, are you living a holy and pure life? Are you living a sanctified life? The people you hang out with, it's not it's not like wrong to hang out with people who aren't Christians. We would encourage you. Yeah, yeah, be out amongst Jesus even says, don't take them out of the world. Just protect them from the evil one, right? Do you do you blend in or do you stand out? And not to just only harp on the singles, really anyone, anyone here. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you living a holy and pure life? Not that the holy and pure life saves you. The holy and pure life does not justify you. The righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you as a gift by faith, faith alone, is what makes you right with God and and secures you and saves you here and now. But there should be an ever-growing likeness of Jesus unfolding in your life. So, what else did Jesus pray for you? So that, that was, that was the, the prayers for those who are his. Now he's going to pray for those who will be his. It says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Whose word? Our word. So as, as we are his representatives and we have a new pleasure, we have, and we're protected, and we, are, we know that we belong to the Father, we believe in the Son, so we have humility. What about the people who are eventually going to be coming into the family of God through faith in Jesus? He prays for the converting power of unity. He prays for the converting power of unity, that there is a a kind of unity amongst Christians that God intends to use in such a way that it actually draws people to Jesus. Look at verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice the result, that they may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. One of the primary instruments that God uses to draw people to Jesus is the profound unity and oneness oneness amongst a local church. One of the things that deters people from Christianity is how we can split and divide over silly, superficial, peripheral things. And God's going, Christ is saying, I need them to see, I want them to see that underneath all these smaller identities that are good, things like ethnicity and things like what you do in your job and things like where, you, where you're from and where you live and how old you are and stage of life. These are all different identities that are not inherently bad. It's when they're at the bottom core of our identity that division starts to happen. And so the rock-bottom identity that Jesus is praying for is the crucified Savior and so that the world should look on the local church and see a bunch, a whole bunch of very different people. And they're like, why, why are you hanging out with that guy or that girl? And you say, why don't you come on in and find out? It's because we have a crucified Savior who died for us and rose again for us and he is, he is our one true hope. The deeper the joy you have, with someone else, the deeper the intimacy and the unity and there's nothing deeper than Christ. So do you pray for unity in this church? Do you pray for other churches? Do you pray that other churches would unify and that if there is division happening do you, that it would, they would come together and unite around Christ? Do you pray for unity amongst the elders here? Amongst the pastors here? Amongst the staff here? Do you pray for unity in your growth group? Do you pray for unity in your marriage? One of the things that I do, uh, whenever I do any sort of counseling, whether it's premarital or marital, is I have people pray out loud for each other, because you can't play games with God. When you come before God, you're spiritually you're naked. You got nothing to hide, and you can't. You better not be using prayer to like teach them a lesson. Because you're you're standing for the holiness of God. You pray for unity in your marriage. You pray for the other person. If you find yourself in conflict, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Do you pray for all divisive, against all divisive impulses in your heart? Any impulse that you get the sense that if it were to be fulfilled, it might divide somebody divide a group, divide a church? Do you pray against that? Jesus also prays, this is the last one. Here's where we'll end. Jesus also prays for a heavenly longing. He prays that, this is kind of the, where all of his prayers are aiming for us. That we would be with him and see him someday. Verse 24-26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All his prayers are aiming here. What Jesus wants more than anything for you is for you to see his glory. If you think about that, that sounds, imagine if I were up here, it's like, I just pray that you would see my glory. It's very strange for me to pray that you would see my glory. But Jesus prays that you would see his glory. It sounds egotistical, but as we learned last week, if, if the, the thing that induces greatest joy in the human heart is the glory of God. If Jesus' joy is the glory of his Father, and your soul was made to experience limitless joy in the glory of God, for Jesus to say to you, I just want them to see my glory, is in fact the most loving thing he could pray for you. It is not egotistical. It's unbelievably unselfish. It's unbelievably consider it it's unbelievably loving for him to plead to the father that they would see his glory do you pray that this longing would grow more and more in you that you would develop more a heavenly mindedness that you would grow discontent not with your present circumstances to get into another circumstance you have a holy discontentment. You're not comfortable here. You're waiting in the other kingdom. Do you pray that that would grow in you? Do you pray like Paul in Philippians 1? It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with now as always a full courage, Christ will be glorified, magnified, honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. If I am to remain in the flesh, that means fruit will for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's far better. You know the song, Jesus is Better? Right? It's, it's, it's biblical. For that is far better. Jesus is better. Do you pray that this desire, that that you could say, honestly, yeah, Jesus is better. And it's going to be, I cannot wait to see him and have completely, have all the dross removed from me and be purified completely, instantly, not in the sense of going to purgatory, but instantly, immediately going into the presence of Christ, all who trust in his name. And your heart is made huge. To drink in more of the joy that is experienced in Christ's presence. The last thing I'm going to do, I just want to read a quote that I, I came across. Um, I just am finishing up a seminary class on church history, and I just finished studying the Reformation. And uh, right around the time of the Reformation in Geneva with John Calvin. His, his burning desire was to see other pastors and ministers who were passionate about the preaching of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was a French theologian and preacher who eventually became John, uh, John Calvin's successor. His name was Simon Goulard. I think I pronounced that correct. And he talked about, he described heaven in a book that he wrote called Christian Discourses. And you must know that the context that these, these men and women were in, they were like hundreds of people could just be wiped out in a plague. Like if you had six children, it was normal to like, for like four of them to die at childbirth. I mean, it was, they were just surrounded by death, surrounded by rottenness, surrounded by filth back in the 16th, excuse, me, excuse me, 16th century. And so, you know, in, in our culture, we we do, we are zealous to protect ourselves from death, to never see it, never experience, not don't think about it. You'll find that actually it may seem strange, that meditating on death, if you're a believer in Christ, actually creates in you a heavenly longing. So I'm just going to read this quote. It's lengthy, but it's not complicated. It's not like super sophisticated. It's just his meditation on heaven. And I, w- I was so overwhelmed by it that I just, I just have to read it. Uh, and then we'll, we'll close. The eternal and blessed life with God in heaven, accompanied by rest and unspeakable glory, is the goal of the faith of Christians. This is the harbor of their hope, the refuge of all their desires, the crown of their consolation that they will certainly enjoy having escaped from the travails of this miserable and fleeting earthly life, indeed from death itself. They will receive in heaven glorified bodies, healed of all evils, no longer afflicted by sin, ignorance, errors, illness, sadness, worry, fear, anguish, or enemies. They will be delivered from all pain and suffering. They will enjoy fully and completely the Lord their God, the fountain and inexhaustible treasure of all good things, who will pour out on them all his goodness, his infinite joy." with which he will satisfy all their thoughts and desires. They will see him and contemplate him face to face without any clouds to obscure him. The eternal father will disclose and reveal his burning and unspeakable love for them, which he demonstrated by sending his son into the world to draw them from death into eternal life. His children will be moved by His gracious work, filled with wonder, contentment, and ineffable delight, and will love their Heavenly Father with a burning love, submitting themselves fully to His wisdom with eager joy, and they will submit to Him as their only sovereign and greatest good, and they will rejoice with continuous joy in His presence, magnifying His glory, singing of His goodness along with the holy angels and the entire church triumphant." There, they will see Jesus Christ, the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, and all the faithful who have preceded him, including their family members and friends who died in repentance and faith. This entire company, together with one heart and voice, will recall the goodness and infinite blessings God has shown them, celebrating with songs of thanksgivings, the praises of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, eternal life is the end and fulfillment of all good things for which God has purchased us through his Son. This is the goal on which our gaze should be fixed throughout our earthly pilgrimage. This is the treasure that we should unceasingly desire. This is the hour and the blessing to which all the plans and efforts of our lives should be inclined. This is our true country, our permanent city, in which our citizenship has been acquired by the merit of the death of Christ. This is the home that we long for amidst the banishments, the weariness, the dangerous fears of this valley of misery and the shadow of death. This is the safe refuge and the beautiful harbor toward which we sail amidst so many waves and storms that constantly trouble the world. This is the blessed land where we will dwell by means of death. And Jesus is praying that you would have that and his prayers will be answered. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this prayer that you prayed with your son. Jesus Christ, we are so grateful, so grateful and humbled to know that you are constantly interceding for those who trust in you today. And that creates security And confidence and hope in us. Help us to feel that and rest in that as we continue in song. In Christ's precious name, I pray. Amen. So, every week, we almost every week, we take the Lord's Supper. Um, Maybe as you come to the table this morning, take the crackers and the juice representing His broken body and shed blood. Maybe you just think about this this longing uh, for heaven that we have. And that Christ prayed that you would have that. And that by means of his broken body and shed blood and by means of trusting in that and that alone, it is secured for those who believe in him. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you not come to the table uh, since you cannot believe or recall something you don't, uh, don't know about. But we do want you to know Jesus. If you, have, if you feel like you have, turned from your sin this morning and trusted in Christ. We hope you have. If you feel the urge, give in. You feel the urge to believe in Jesus Christ, just do it. <laughs> He's totally worthy of your trust. And if you have, you may come to the, the table. So as you feel led, you can come.